You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Welcome to the second and final part of our interview with retired U.S. Army Colonel Jim Cox. This time, we will talk about Colonel Cox's experiences as a military attache after the 1991 coup in Moscow. Now, now after the coup was resolved, uh, the work of the attache's office changed a good bit, I think. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, I'd be happy to. The, I tell people that I was assigned to the Soviet Union, but I came home from Russia, which is really true. And what happened was, immediately after the coup, we, we realized that we, we didn't know what the future would bring. I mean, there was a lot of concern about what would happen as the Soviet Union was falling apart. What would happen in Russia, questions about nuclear weapons, control of nuclear weapons, control, uh, questions about uh, regions perhaps splitting off, civil war, uh, questions about economic collapse, people starving. There was a lot of big questions and concerns out there. Um, but one thing that we realized within our office was that no, we just sensed that Washington no longer cared about things other than nuclear weapons but, and things like that. But, I mean, military equipment. And they, didn't, they didn't care about the, tanks and fighter the, planes and that sort of that thing. That doesn't mean anything anymore. So now it's what are they thinking? What are they saying? Uh, and it, instead of being kind of a passive exercise where we would travel out and nobody would speak to us because we were enemy number one, we, we, we quickly became aware that we suddenly, it appeared to many of us that they, we became friend number one, or perhaps there was potential to become friend number one, and, but every Russian wanted to talk to us. So it, the, the dynamic became one of uh, the, the better your Russian language ability was, the more useful you could be in terms of talking to people and in reporting to Washington about the things they were talking about. Now, if somebody, if you, before the coup, if you had met a, a Soviet citizen on, on the train, for instance, and they'd started chatting you up, 
because you're interesting, you're exotic, right? right? Um, how would you have responded to that in the, in the pre-coup environment? In the pre-coup environment, that happened a lot. We would travel by train a lot or in airports flying uh, to one city or another, and we were always traveling in civilian clothes and, you know, obviously foreigners by just by our dress, and Russians would chat with us, and uh, typically, because we were always under surveillance. By the uh, KGB or somebody like that. Right. Uh, so we would chat for maybe three minutes or so with uh, people, let's say like on a train, uh, in the hallway, outside the coupes, stand, just standing in the hallway, we'd chat with them, and then we'd say, you know, um, you need to understand, we're American military officers, we work at the U.S. Embassy, and that gentleman down at the end of the hallway is watching. So if you, if you leave us now, He'll just ask you a couple questions, but you won't get in trouble. But if you insist on staying here and talking with us, we'd love to talk to you. But if you, if you you're going to probably get in trouble. And the Russian citizens, depending on their age and lots of factors, would sometimes they would say, oh, forget him down there. We'll, we'll, I just want to talk to you. Or they'd say, oh, thank you very much. It was a nice chatting with you. And they'd go back to their, to their seats. Because and, and, um, we had no desire to get normal Russians into any kind of trouble. I mean, it was, there, was, there was no reason for it. I mean, we just appreciated their kindness and, and their willingness to chat with us, even just for a couple of minutes. But that changed after the coup as well. You were, you were now willing and, uh, to actually engage with them. You felt like you weren't putting them in as much danger. We, something happened after the coup that I never, ever thought would happen in uh, the Russian Federation. I found that there were so many people that wanted to talk to me that, I, that I, I found myself actually spending time in the embassy, sitting down, trying to figure out the opportunity cost of spending time talking to person A versus person B. Who, who's going to be most useful to who's me? Who's going to be most useful? Because some of these people were coming out of Siberia. They came from some scientific institute or something. They'd had these acronym names, and I, you know, I didn't know what they w wanted to talk to me about. I didn't know where they were. I don't know if this was an, uh, you know, a cow farm or if this is some sort of nuclear research facility. So to trying to determine the opportunity cost, because I only have so many hours in the day, and if I give them to you, then I can't give them to the other person. And it, it literally, we would scratch our heads trying to figure out, you know, okay, what would be the best use of our time, because so many people are, are demanding our time now. It was, it was a target-rich environment. It, it was, and it was a very anomalous period because that doesn't exist to the extent it did then, it does not exist today. So it was like the windows of opportunity had blown wide open for about a year, and, and it was us or nobody. So we had to take advantage of it to the best of our abilities. And you've told me off mic also, and you I think alluded to this, but you put the cameras away, and you made a point of not traveling with cameras. Right. Uh, that was, that, there was a very funny little incident that occurred with my boss, the Army Attaché, Colonel Reppert, and I. Uh, I started traveling to the heart of the military-industrial complex in the Urals, and what I was finding was they, they would welcome me, and they would take me into factories that used to, I remember one in particular, a factory that used to produce self-propelled artillery, the best, the most modern self-propelled artillery that the Soviets made. And they had models of the, the little plastic models and things like that, like display or uh, models of, of their equipment, and even static displays outside. But we'd, I'd go into the factory, and there would be these huge bolts sticking out of the floor, but all the machinery was gone. It was gone. There was nothing there. There was no, no more artillery to be made. And then the plant manager even explained, he said, the military wants to buy on credit. Nah, that's not going to work. They've got to pay us. They don't have the money, so we're not building it. We're going to do something else. And I was dutifully going back and reporting this and stunning people because I was inside the factory where people had never been before. 
So my boss decided to come out with me one time, and, and, and one of the things that, one of the little side lights, nice little uh, side lights uh, going out to the Urals is there's, the Russians actually have in Yekaterinburg a little park, uh, a little monument with the, with the uh, two different colors of brick showing the dividing line, the continental divide between Europe and Asia. And our Russian escort took my boss and I out there and um, we're there taking photos. Or no, actually, we're just standing there uh, admiring it. And the, the Russian uh, turns to me and he says, so why don't you take a photo? Well, immediately after the coup, because we decided that the, the one way, nobody cares about photos anymore. It's only about what people think. So we stopped carrying cameras because that would always get the Russians excited if we carried cameras. So we didn't have any kind of camera with us. So I said, I don't have a camera. And our Russian escort turned to my boss, Colonel Reppert, and he said, well, then you take a photo. And Colonel Reppert said, I don't have a camera. So this Russian literally turned to us and said, let me see if I have this straight. I have two American military attaches in the middle of the Soviet military industrial complex, and neither of you has a camera. Now, one of the buzzwords at the time was new thinking. Uh, the, the, this is all new thinking. The, the Russian foreign policy would be new thinking. Russian policies, relations with other countries would be new thinking. So in Russian, I turned to, my, to the escort and I said, let's consider this new thinking. And he, his answer was, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a great moment. Um, last, last couple of points I want to cover. Um, uh, Moscow was not the only place that you were an attache. Uh, you served um, briefly, I think for about a month you told me, uh, as an attache in Kazakhstan. So one of the former Soviet republics uh, right. in Central Asia. Right. In, I believe, 1993. Right, in the fall of 1993, for can about you, six weeks. Can, can you... What was what was going on in Kazakhstan? What what sort of the issues? What were sort of the issues that you were dealing with there? And how if, how did that contrast with the kind of work that you were doing as an attaché in Moscow, in the capital of Russia, and previously the capital of the entire Soviet Union? Well, there are a lot of differences because our, our embassy in Moscow always has been a very large embassy, and it's much larger now uh, even than than during the Cold War. Uh, and when the Soviet <laughs> Union fell apart, we had suddenly fifteen new countries and Kazakhstan being one of them. So the State Department and, and the other government agencies um, had to find people to staff new embassies, find buildings and ambassadors and, and, and staffs. To, and so what we had in Kazakhstan at that time in 1993 was uh, an American staff of, I'm going to guess, about a dozen Americans, not, not more, very small. Whereas we had hundreds in Moscow, we had 12. Um, and. Um, I, I chose to go to Kazakhstan after uh, Moscow just for as an interim attaché because I had not had the opportunity to travel there before. So, just to increase my experience in the in the region, I, I opted for there. Um, wonderful ambassador by the name of Bill Courtney, uh, who who was an old Moscow hand as well, uh, greeted me warmly uh, because he knew I was experiencing. I'd come out of Moscow, and he, when he uh, when we first talked, he said. Um, the, the one request I have for you, Colonel Cox, is I want you to wear your uniform every day. Uh, a He's, contrast from what you've uh, been doing in Moscow. Totally contrast, right. Normally we just wore it on official occasions, special occasions. But he said, wear your uniform every day because <coughs> Kazakhstan is trying to assert itself as a new country, you know, establish itself as a new country. We're trying to establish ourselves as a new embassy here. And he said, trust me, I just sense that it's going to open doors for you at, to be 
uh, very visibly an American officer walking down the streets in Almaty, Kazakhstan. And he was absolutely right. I wore my uniform every day, and I'd go to one place or another, and uh, people would say, hey, are you an American officer? Come in here. I need to talk to you. So it was just wonderful. It was like I was wearing my business card all over my, my body. Uh, and uh, it, we had a wonderful time. Most of my time there was spent preparing for a Secretary of State visit. Warren Christopher, Secretary of State, came to visit uh, right near the end of my time. And, of course, the buildup for that, uh, all the defense and security issues, as well as the other issues the embassy was, was working on, um, kept us quite busy. But, but it really was a wonderful time. After 1993, you went on to uh, another assignment or two, and then towards the end of your career, you spent three years as defense attaché, I believe, um, yes. in Poland. In uh, Poland. 1997 to 2000? Correct. What was, what was the work in Poland? What was going on in Poland at that time? That would have been a very different flavor, I imagine, from both Moscow and Kazakhstan. Uh, it, Poland was in a different place politically and strategically then. Right. And I, and I chose it for those reasons. I figured, what, what else can a, an old Cold Warrior do uh, as he's nearing the end of his career? And I decided that uh, helping Poland get into NATO uh, would be a, a fitting um, end to, to my career. The, I had to make the choice long before I knew um, that Poland was actually going to be invited to join NATO, I had to make my decision in 1995 and go through a year of Polish language training at the Foreign Service Institute here in Washington. Which presumably wouldn't have been too hard, given that you already had very good Russian. True, uh, except uh, there's, I, I, I use the expression that there's about a 50% overlap in vocabulary between Polish and Russian. And uh, at some point, though, it becomes... Um, I don't think I could ever speak Russian without inserting Polish words anymore or Polish without inserting Russian words. Poles used to laugh at me sometimes because I would stick a Russian word in the middle of a sentence. So you went from good Russian and no Polish to bad Russian and bad Polish. I don't know anybody who speaks both languages who doesn't get them, you know, blended together uh, as they talk. But okay. uh, anyway, uh, I, it just, I just sensed that this was going to happen, that, uh, that, that United States policy was not going to leave the newly liberated Eastern Europe in limbo. Um, and so, and if it happened, I wanted to be in the, in the biggest country with the biggest military where I could have the most impact. So I, I made my bets and it, it worked out. And I arrived in Poland three weeks after the Madrid summit, the NATO Madrid summit, where Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary were uh, invited to start the accession process to get into NATO. There was no guarantees. And as with um, any um, enlargement of NATO in this particular case, the U.S. Senate has to approve it. Uh, so it just doesn't happen. So there was, there was a lot on the line here uh, with this kind of post-Cold War policy of enlarging NATO, and um, I was happy to be in the middle of the maelstrom once again. But as you said, it was, it was a totally different experience. Uh, this was all policy work this time, not intelligence work. I was just going to say, yeah. this would have been much more, I assume, towards the diplomatic end of being an attaché than the intelligence collector end. Yes. Diplomat the dip diplomatic end is really a constant in, in any attaché job, but I would say it was more on the... On the I, I dealt with uh, OSD policy, the Secretary of Defense's policy staff and the NATO staff and the European Command policy staff much more so than I dealt with the Defense Intelligence Agency or anybody else back in Washington. And I assume also that the Polish government and the Polish military, which very much wanted to be in NATO, probably would bend over backwards to work with you and to accommodate you and to be friendly and pretty much uh, 
work hand in glove with you. Would that be fair? Yeah, that would be fair. That's absolutely a true statement. But uh, given that we both had those attitudes of working together, I, I had to, I found that I created some organizations, some committees, some uh, or, uh, working groups, let's say, that uh, to, how do we become more efficient? How do we try to make best use of not just U.S., but other NATO countries also had assistance packages uh, that they were offering uh, Polish military. So how do we integrate that, coordinate that, so we're not all teaching English language training and missing out on air traffic control procedures or something like that. So there was a lot of this, this sort of uh, deconflicting and making sure we get the biggest bang for the buck, uh, getting various agencies, U.S. agencies, uh, kind of working off the, the same program uh, and then trying to maximize the impact on that with the Polish military. So I, I spent a great deal of time with the Polish general staff and the Ministry of Defense uh, working out these um, kind of new um, relationships and, and trying to accelerate the whole process. of uh, they're, they're building interoperable capabilities for NATO. Good. Well, Colonel James Cox, it sounds like you uh, had a really fascinating uh, and, and rewarding career. You're, you're a lucky man, it seems to me. So. Thank you. I, I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> I, it, was, it was a great run I had. Well, we're, we're grateful uh, that you came and, and you shared your experience and expertise uh, explaining a little bit about the work of uh, defense attaches. And thank you so much for joining us here at the International Spy Museum. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.